0: For listeners of Stadium Scene's Made Event, you can save 15% by typing in promo code Stadium Scene, that's all one word, at checkout. To learn more, visit linkapp.com, that's L I N Q A P P.com. Were you expecting to learn something today? No? Well, tough. It's time to go back to school and learn about the evolution of sports journalism with our guest, Dr. Brian Moritz, Professor of Communication at SUNY Oswego. This was an awesome interview, and you're really going to learn a lot. So let's get this show started. Live from a makeshift recording studio, somewhere in the middle of the desert, this is
1: the Stadium Scene Podcast
0: with your hosts, DJ Flog. I suck at trivia, and I suck at telling jokes. Thompson,
2: the Jackman, which is just the most awesome name,
0: and Jillian Fisher.
2: No, that was just because I'm crazy
0: as hell.
1: (laughs) You're listening to the Stadium Scene Podcast.
0: Hey, welcome to episode 27. Jillian is on the road traveling today, but Kate is here with us. But I'm not giving her a chance to introduce herself because we have a guest and we don't want to waste any more time. So today, our guest is currently an assistant professor at SUNY Oswego in the Communication Studies Department. He has over 18 years between his research in media and time in the newspaper industry. He holds a PhD in mass communication from Syracuse University and has won numerous awards for his work from organizations such as the New York State Associated Press and Gannett Media. Now he prefers to be known as the sports media guy, so please welcome to the show Dr. Brian Moritz.
1: Woo! Did I do that right, Kate? Did I nail it?
2: <laughs>
0: you succeeded!
1: <I'm>, I've been <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you guys for, for having me. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot of fun.
0: We wanted to, uh, Kate approached you. Or, uh approached uh, you about this originally, and we're like, you know what, this is this is really good. I think having a professor from, or having the the you know, the, the I don't know what word I'm looking for, but having the uh, perspective from that's the word I was looking for, perspective of somebody who's been in industry, been in academia, researching industry, just it's it's a perspective you don't hear a lot of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the uh, it's interesting when I think about um, when I especially when I look at the newspaper industry, you know, I was I've almost been out of the newspaper industry longer than I was in the newspaper industry. I was a reporter for 10 years. Then I went back to graduate school and, and, uh, and started teaching. And that was, that was nine years ago, uh, last month, actually nine years ago in August when I left. So it is a, it's interesting because it is in so many ways that I'm sure we're going to get to here, a very, very different industry than the one, that I was in, in the, in the late nineties and early two thousands. And there are certainly some things that are the same and there are certain, uh, some things that, you know, um, have, you know, have stayed true to how I did my job in 1999 and 2000 and 2003 up and that are still true now, but in so many ways, you know, the job that I used to have is so different now, um, but it, it, and it, and it's interesting researching it. It's in, interesting teaching it and trying to prepare, um, my students at SUNY Oswego to get ready for, um, for their, for their jobs and their careers. Um, and it's, and it's honestly, it's a topic I find endlessly fascinating. The sports journalism world, the evolution of it, the changes on it. I mean, I think about this stuff and I, about, about it constantly. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to chatting with you all about it and to, and to, uh, having a good discussion.
0: So Great. Right? Jump, jumping right into it, you know, you you entered into the industry around 1999, and that was the time, you know, it's pre-social media, pre-smartphones. It's if if I missed SportsCenter, I missed the game. I was waiting for the newspaper the next morning to find out if the Cubs won. Wait, wait, wait!
2: You could read.
0: <sighs> yes, I I well, I still can read. Thank you very much. But anyway. Yeah, it's, it. you know, that, that was it. We had to wait for the newspaper the next morning. I mean, you know, the Internet was still, I guess we had the Internet. It was still a relatively new concept, but, you know, we had to dial in. But, you know, what what was the industry like for you going back in there? Like coming out of school, fresh into the industry, you know, that's the newspaper industry was kind of starting its transition, but not really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was, I think back on those days, and I, and I tell the story in my classes a lot. You know, I started at the Olean Times-Herald, which is a small daily newspaper south of Buffalo, in the town where I went to school. I went to school at St. Bonaventure, and then I started working at the paper the day after, during my senior year, actually. Um, and then I moved into the sports department just in time to cover uh, the basketball program, which is D1, plays in the Atlantic 10. And I tell the story all the time, is that not only did we have dial-up internet At the newsroom which my nobody knows what dial-up internet was now if you're if you're younger than 30 but we had one computer in the entire newsroom that went online every other computer was just like a standalone like a, a computer it was connected internally but that was it the only we had one computer where we got all of the email for the newsroom and where you had to wait if you wanted to go look up something online, you had to wait until somebody else was done using it before you could go over and and and, and get online. So in so many ways, it was it was just such a different media world. Um, you say the internet was growing. I mean, at, at, at that time. Um, you know, one of the biggest changes that you see is that the Internet was it was some place you went like you. I, I remember vividly at college you had, you know, and outside and after college, like the Internet was the thing you did after dinner or after like you watch TV for the night. You would sit down at your computer. You probably didn't have a laptop. You probably had a desktop and you logged on to the Internet um, and you checked your email once or twice a day and you kind of caught up with everything. Um, And why do I ramble about that? Because that's that was the world that I entered. That was the world of newspapers and of journalism in 1999 in 2000 is that it was the the internet publishing online was this kind of fantasy world almost it was this like the this dream of publishing online and it was also very much complimentary your job my job was still to write a story for the next day's newspaper that was my job that was my focus nothing was go- like and when we published online i actually was one of the people who started the website at, at, at our newspaper um, you didn't you published the story that went in the paper and the paper went online after we printed because the focus was print. And so I mean that's what the whole focus of it was was the 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 newspaper and the internet was well. Eventually, we're going to figure it out, and we're going to make money off of it, and it's going to be fine. And here we are, 20 years later, almost. We're still figuring out how to make money off of it. We're still, you know, trying to figure it out. You know, it's funny. One of the I was just telling one of my classes this the other day. You know, and this illustrates the change is that when I was covering St. Bonaventure, they uh, they made the NCAA tournament and they played Kentucky in the first round, and they had that noon game on Thursday, like the first game of the day, and it was a great game. They go to double overtime. One of the guys, David Messiah Capers, I'll never forget, hits three free throws with point three seconds point three seconds left in overtime to send it to a second overtime. Bonaventure ends up losing, so the game ends at like two thirty, right? My my game story came out in the next afternoon's paper, so the people in Olean read my game story of a game that ended at two o'clock on Thursday at five o'clock on Friday, <laughs> I and can't that, that that. That I know it, 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 I, my students look at me like I'm from Venus when I say that. But that's absolutely, you know, that's that that illustrates, I guess, one of the, you know, the changes that we've seen is that now that's just incomprehensible that you would do something like that. Um,
0: and coming from a, a town, growing up in a, in a smaller town with a small town newspaper and, you know, there used to be an afternoon edition. We get the, you know, the newspaper delivered about three thirty four o'clock. And then it was like, hey, we're now a morning paper. And then we'd open up the sports section, like, did the Cubs win last night. Oh, the game ended after the deadline. So it just says, right. game. So I don't even know if they won or not. I had to wait till the broadcast that night to figure out if they
1: yeah. won. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was, you know, the deadline, you know, and one of the things you still see in newspapers and one of the changes that that you've seen is that that daily, dead, bleh, daily deadline was, I mean, that was the be all end all. That drove everything that drove you know on uh, you know what news made it what news didn't um that you know whether the cubs game you know when they're playing the dodgers you're probably not getting that that score um because it ended it probably began before deadline ended much less ended um and you know yeah it is um that that scarcity of infor- that scarcity of information that scarcity of media that we that we lived in, um, I mean, it felt normal at the time. It just felt the way the way it was. But, you know, with the emergence of digital media, with the emergence of online media and obviously social media as well, I mean, it's I mean, it's now it's like looking back and seeing how, you know, monks used to create illuminated manuscripts before Gutenberg invented the printing press. And you're like, I don't understand that. That's such a foreign world. I can't even conceive of it.
0: Yeah, and and that's like you know they teach you in history class. They show the famous picture of Harry Truman holding up the the copy of the whatever the Chicago paper was that said you know uh, Dewey defeats Truman, and there's Truman with his big smirk on his face, and it's just like that's again they they uh, they wrote that based on the deadline. It turned out not to be the case, and then now it's this has become an infamous photo in history.
1: Right.
2: So what has been the hardest part in your mind um, transitioning from the printed media to a digital
1: one now? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I'm going to kind of take there's kind of two parts, I think, to that answer, Um, because the biggest one obviously is the business model of journalism, not just sports journalism, of journalism in general. You know, I mentioned the idea of scarcity a few minutes ago, and that idea of scarcity drove the business models of all mass media, not just newspapers, but radio, TV, everything. And now all of a sudden you're in an age of abundance and you're in an age where that advertising driven business model that powered newspapers for a hundred years for basically the entire 20th century, that just, that doesn't fit into our our digital world it just it's just kind of incompatible with it so that's the biggest one that's why among other reasons you're seeing drop you know layoffs and people losing their jobs and staffs constricting and papers closing and all of that so that's kind of like the big overall issue for the for like the actual journalism um i would say that one of the biggest changes um and i wrote about this a few years ago it came out of my dissertation research and it was i wrote about it for the international journal of sports communication um and, and it's really an evolution where the like i said when you when you're a print journalist it's all about that story you know you have a 15 inch story so you have about a 650 words 700 words story that you're writing off of a game off of practice that day off of a coach's press conference a column whatever and that's that's your day all of your work is focused around that those 650 words or whatever now, what has changed is we've gone from emphasizing the story to emphasizing what I call the stream. Excuse me. And that stream really it is that the way news the way we consume news now, you know, it's posting to Twitter, it's uh, updating stories online. Um, and it, it's kind of that that running, you know, it, it's not about that one story that you're gonna read in the morning. It's going to be kind of your taking it in all day from different different sources. So, uh, just to use an ex- as an example, um, as we record this um, th- yesterday, uh, I, gr- I live in uh, West- I still live in Western New York. I grew up and I'm still a Buffalo Bills fan. Um, and on Monday, they uh, announced that Nathan Peterman was going to be the starting quarterback for ostensibly the season. But really, just really week one, uh, the week, the-, the opening day starter. And I, w- I was thinking about this earlier I- in the kind of internet age in that late 90s early 2000s fans wouldn't know that until the six o'clock news probably maybe the 12 o'clock news you know if they if they, if they have a time, but the five or six o'clock news would be when they first announce it even if the team announces it at nine o'clock fans don't have access to that information because it's only you know there's the the the, the local channels maybe espn picks it up but they're not publishing in real time the newspapers aren't publishing in real time and so all of your work, if you're a, 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 what we would then call a print reporter, is around doing your reporting and writing that story. That's going to be Tuesday morning with the lead, something like the Bills name, Nathan Peterman, starting quarterback for opening day, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. Now, think about that now. they announced, The Bills announced it at 9 o'clock. For one thing, the fans fans are following the team on Twitter and on digital media and on social media, so they see it when everyone else does. So as a reporter, you're you're tweeting that out. Now you're not breaking a story that Nathan Peterman is starting at quarterback. You're retweeting the team or you're putting it out there, confirm Nathan Peterman to start. Then you're going to live tweet the coach's press conference about it. You're going to write a short story as soon as that's announced. Uh, post it on your website and then update that throughout the day. Maybe with different stories. Maybe the, it, it's going it, to what digital media has done. You know, both anecdotally and the research has shown this is that it has really accelerated the news cycle. You know, where it used to be kind of this twenty-four hour news cycle. Now it's 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 a constant, and you're always you know I, interviewing sports journalists for my research. One of the things that keeps coming up is this notion that they are always on deadline, that they're always writing, that they're always making something you don't have. So one, you know, circle back to your original question from three hours ago. But one of the uh, one of the big changes is your work day Like you're never off. Like I, I, I've said this in 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 other places before. Is that one of the best moments when you were a reporter was you would finish your your story, you would you would click send, you talk to your editor, it would be done, and you feel like you could close the laptop and like take a breath and like okay, I'm done for the day. You don't have that feeling now, because you're done with whatever story is going to be in the print edition, but now you're. You're consistently updating it. You're replying to your your mentions on Twitter, and you're, you know, continuing. You're you're just kind of always plugged in. So I think that's been the biggest change from a journalist perspective is that it's it's and not only is it accelerated, but now you're you're always creating stuff, and that kind of familiar rhythm of doing a story is not your the job anymore. So wow,
0: well, oh, go ahead.
2: I was gonna say that seems like every in, the whole you're always connected and always working is kind of across the board now. I absolutely. Know that way as an engineer. Um, and DJ, I'm sure you do too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's in the time that it took the you know for for a journalist to respond to a, you know a tweet come out, you've got you know ten random fans tweeting. Oh my God! The guy who had that disastrous first start last year, and blah blah blah, and it's like you know, before you have a chance to really you know break it down and analyze it, you've got ten random Joes going back to the YouTube videos, posting the you know the stats from last year. It just it's 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 insane. It's it literally is nonstop.
1: Right. And, you know, and, and Kate, your point is well taken. I think that it's certainly this is not a journalism only thing where you're kind of always on and always connected to your job. I mean, I certainly feel that, you know, teaching, you know, where you kind of have to make a concerted effort to um, to turn off the laptop, to close the lid, to, you know, put the phone away for a few minutes and, and not be working. Um, but I think that, you know, for a journalist, it's kind of, you know, fundamentally changed a lot of portions of the job. Like, DJ, you were saying with the fan interaction and stuff like that. Like, my job as a professor doesn't, you know, it feels different, but there's still the fundamental, like, I'm teaching a course and then I'm grading stuff and interacting with students. And that's accelerated and kind of changed online. With journalism, I think there has been a kind of a fundamental change in the actual job output and how you do your job. That's um, certainly not unique, but I think has kind of had profound and kind of unremarked impacts on on journalism and on sports journalism.
2: So I'm going to kind of move us to like the amateur blogger, podcaster like us and bloggers. We with social media and all of that, we're starting to get out there and tell our story how do you think this is being received among people who actually went to school for journalism?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's the age old debate. Um, And I will say it has gotten much more, my sense is it's Across the board, much more accepting the the industry attitude, I should say, is much more accepting of fan sites, of blogs, of social media than it was maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, definitely 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, I think that the the blog versus beat writer debate was like one of these weirdly, hotly contested ones within Sports journalism nerd circles for a while But it's kind of faded away A little bit I think um you know the dead spins of the world and the the big leads and the awful announcements and, and those sites you know they were it's funny because you look back and they were very much kind of setting themselves up as we are not the daily newspaper we are we print swear words and we tell the stories that the reporters don't tell you and and, and all that and certainly that was true but i feel like that the what was you know what we call well we this uh, the the world of blogs and the world of social media has kind of evolved, I think, a lot over the past ten years. And I think, look, I think, you know, good sports journalists, the ones who care, the ones who are. Um, the the ones who are who kind of get it to be frank are the ones who look at it and say look if you're doing a fan blog about the L.A. Dodgers so let's just pick a team you obviously sincerely really care you're probably reading every word that the beat writer writes every notebook every little nugget of uh, of information and you're providing a good perspective like you said you're you're getting your story out there and I think that there there's more acceptance of it I think that um, you know, everybody in the past, as as digital media has evolved in the past decade, I think everyone's kind of seen where their lane is. And I think that um, I, I think, look, the more voices we have in sports writing, the better, um, because the that's not a secret. But the dirty truth of sports journalism is, is that it's a white man's profession. I mean, it is. You look at you look at every uh uh, census of the uh, of the industry and it's o- overwhelmingly white and male. Um, and there are, and, and it is slowly getting better, but not slowly, not not enough. And so, if blogs and social media can empower women, uh, women of color, people of color, Hispanic uh, writers, uh, LGBTQ writers, all these different different communities that are not. You know the typical white dude who went to Northwestern or Syracuse and you know started covering and, and is moving his way up the ladder of, of the industry. I think that that's good. I think that the more voices we have, the better.
0: So on the topic of of blogs, one of the things and you know, we work with quite a few content producers, we'll call them. Okay. a lot of the things that we notice, that uh, that we've seen is a lot of these people have a journalism background. They've went to school for journalism. They went to school for writing or broadcasting or or communications, and they're struggling to break into industry. So they figured, you know what, what what better way to create a resume for myself than to let's just start writing and self-publish my work. Nobody may read it, but, hey, it's it's a good resume booster. What would you say to your students if, you know, that – they're struggling to find a job. Is that a, a technique you'd recommend? Is that something that's that's worthwhile in your mind?
1: Um, yes, with an asterisk. Um So yes, I think that I, I think that I, I I think the idea that I'm going to be a blogger and then get signed to ESPN like Bill Simmons did back in what 2000, <laughs> whenever. I think that that's that's frankly, a pipe dream. I mean, it could happen, but, you know, a lot of things could happen. Um, I don't think that that's a... Vi- I, I don't necessarily think that that's a viable uh, career plan. I would say... I do say to my students that they should have a blog. Um, that they because then you're writing and you know Will Leach from the founder of Deadspin who has been very gracious and come to my class uh, spoken to my class several years in a row now he often stresses this to to report to my students you want to be writing or creating content to use the parlance of our times you want to be making stuff right you want to be ma- you know you can write you can go to Medium and you can be writing within like ten seconds of going to Medium.com for the first time. You can do a podcast, you know, a podcast. All you have to do is have a free SoundCloud account and it creates an RSS feed. There you go. You've got a podcast. I think the important thing is you want to make to be making stuff to be writing is the most important thing because, you know, you look at anybody who's been successful in creative work like this and you get better by getting reps you get better at writing the only way you get better at writing is to write a lot and you're going to write a lot of crap but you write a lot the, the more you write the the better you will get eventually um the more you podcast you know my first podcasts were a a abominations but now they're less abominable um but i but the more you do it and i think that if you do it for the right reasons if you don't do it expecting that you're going to catch a big break but you do it because this is your craft and you want to get in the habit of writing every day or three times a week and just kind of get in that rhythm you know i think that that is always good you know if you can show you know, certainly when you're on, the, you know, I tell my students when you're looking for a job, um, certainly professional quality work, you know, prof- from a professional place is preferable from a student newspaper, or from a student radio station or TV station, or any kind of internship, because obviously there, there, there's a certain amount of vetting that goes on, right? There's a certain amount of editing, whatever, um, but. Absent that, you want to be able to show that, hey, I write and this is what I do or I make videos and th- and this is them. And so I think that the more you can write, the better you can do and the more and the better you look. And I think that that and more importantly, the more you write, the better you get. And it's, you know, I tell my students this all the time, you know, don't worry about what's going to make you look good to a prospective employer. Worry about. Being a good writer If that's what you want to do um, And you know, I, I often come back to this, the Great Steve Martin quote when he was asked like, What's his uh, uh, Career advice to young entertainers And his advice, and I tell this to my students, is Be so good that they can't ignore you you know, Bill Simmons didn't land on, on ESPN.com because he had a good SEO strategy or a good LinkedIn profile. He was really good and inventive at what he did. Now, you can't maybe be what Bill Simmons was because there's already a Bill Simmons and there are a lot more bloggers now than there were in 2000. But you can you can hone your craft. You can write. And even if you just write for yourself and never show anybody, show it to anybody, that habit, that practice is going to pay off for you.
2: That's a lot of really good advice. So, um, do you have? I have one more like journalism question. Then we're gonna move to some fun fast facts. Cause Love it. I'll start with the F, and I thought that was cool yesterday. Okay. Um, so, do you have any ideas on where the future of sports journalism is heading?
1: Okay, so my standard answer on this, and this sounds dismissive, but it's not, but if I had an answer to that, I would be living on a, in a very big house in the mountains somewhere and not have to worry about that pile of this pile of papers I have to grade for tomorrow. <laughs> um, so I don't know. What I'm most interested in, and I'm doing a bunch of research with uh, my podcast uh, colleague Dr. Galen Clavio at uh, Indiana University. We're doing several studies on the athletic. I am utterly fascinated and obsessed with the athletic as a, as a business model. Um, the athletic is of course the website launched two years ago, uh, in 2016 and it's a subscription only sports site. So there's no ads, there's no video. It's just sports writing and there's no paywall. You have to, to read anything you have to pay. And I I believe they start off at like five bucks a month. um, and, and go, go on, kind of have different uh, subscription rates from there. But I'm very interested in this because this is the first time that the sports section has ever kind of been unbundled from the newspaper. You know, the newspaper came and you would subscribe and you'd get everything, whether you were a sports fan or not. So kind of like the way that the iTunes store back in 2004 unbundled the album because now you could just buy the song you wanted for 99 cents as opposed to having to buy the whole album. Now I can get the sports section um for five bucks a month rather than you know subscribing to to a full newspaper. And let's face it, newspaper websites are terrible to use. Um and the Athletic is a great site. The site works well. It's clean. It's well designed. They have hired some incredibly talented writers and they're growing at a time when most news organizations are shrinking, they're growing at a staggering rate. I am utterly fascinated with how they're how what with their business model. I'm fascinated with how they cover teams. And it's one of the studies we're doing, because if you're asking people to pay five bucks a month for sports content, well, I can get Buffalo bills news for free from ESPN. So what am I getting for my five bucks a month? And that's, a question that can kind of sound snarky, but it's also not. I'm also, like, genuinely curious. Like, what is, what is, what value am I getting from this, you know? Because I think that's a big thing when we look at paying for media. It's not about, not necessarily about cost. It's about value. Like, I don't know that Netflix, I don't, you know, if you asked me, you know several years ago, do I want to pay for Netflix? You know what do i why do I pay for Netflix every month? Because I get value out of it. There's always something there for it. Um I was talking with a colleague of mine, and uh, he said that he looks at it like HBO. Like as long as HBO has that one thing I can't live without, I'm a subscribe to it. And so I th- I, I'm fascinated with where not just the athletic as a site goes, But uh, this idea of debundling sports uh, journalism, because I think this gets at the big question that I talked about earlier that this idea of how we pay for it, what's the business model for online news that works in 2018? Since we don't have one yet, what works now? And I'm fascinated to see if this goes well.
2: Wow. I'm just like, sitting here like that makes a lot of sense i just cancel not the table because i don't watch it
1: <laughs> you have cut the cord so well that's interesting so have i like we cut the cord in four years ago when we moved into our house but what's funny is that we cut the cord but we didn't do it to save money because we pay for netflix we pay for hulu uh we pay for high speed internet so it's you know i think we're paying less you know when we buy movies on itunes or amazon or whatever or rent them, and so, you know, cost. wise you know? Are we spending less? Well, maybe, but it's kind of about this idea of choice. It's about the I want to control. Like, I don't want cable coming into my house. I just don't like it. I'd rather pay for. Uh, I'd rather, that money I'm going to spend on cable. I'd rather pay for streaming services that I like and that, you know, Hulu's app is garbage, but at least the site, the, the, the site itself is very good and, and, and the service is, is very good. And I'd rather pay for that. I get value from that versus cable where I don't see the value. So I think that's, well, I, I think a lot of times in media, we think about, you know, spending money in terms of cost and saving money and how much it costs, but when I think value is a more important kind of idea and metric to be looking at
0: we uh, we killed our direct tv subscription. We, had, you know, a basic middle of the line plan with DVR service and they sent me a letter in the mail around Christmas last year that said, "Hey, congratulations. You're getting a rate hike and you're going to be spending $140 a month on the service." I'm like, "For what? What am I yeah. what am I getting for $140?" So, you know, we switched to Hulu and we got our live tv for Hulu for 40 bucks and I'm like, You know, if you come up with a way that I could watch my, you know, live sports without having to worry about local blackouts and crap like that, I wouldn't need cable. I mean, over the air, I could get stuff off of local TV, I can get stuff off of Netflix, and be done with it.
1: Well, and 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 I mean, live sports has always been kind of cable's ace in the hole, and now that you know, as, as you you see, you know, ESPN's new app, which I thought was going to be a lot bigger deal than it turned out to be, um, but I think that you know, a, a, as you look at, you know rights you know what what's going to happen to rights fees for these leagues when they renegotiate tv contracts now that people are cutting the cord or fewer people are watching you know traditional over the top tv how are they going to take into account streaming games i think i think from that perspective i think from it's not really a journalism idea but from a sports media perspective i think that's really going to be an important question that leagues and the networks are going to are are probably they're probably i hope really looking into it right now and, and and trying to come up with answers to the, to those questions.
0: Kate, you got some, some, uh, fast fun facts for us. So yeah. Ready?
1: Let's do it.
2: Okay. Mets or Yankees? Mets. High top or low top chucks?
1: Oh, low top, low top black converse. Oh,
2: nice. Perfect. That's what I have. Um, favorite sport basketball, Chicago style or New York style pizza?
1: Oh God! Are you serious with this? Chicago's <laughs> Chicago is not pizza. New York is the only way to eat pizza. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm from, sorry. I know you're.
0: I, you know, I'm from the Midwest. I lived in Chicago for almost ten years. I 100 percent agree with you.
1: <laughs> yes, New York style. No, there's n- there's no that 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 that's almost like the Lucille Bluth. I don't understand the question, and I re- won't answer it. I mean, that's just a given.
0: <laughs> I'm uh. Um, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead.
2: What's the most memorable sporting moment you got to report on?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Um, digga, digga, digga. Let me see. I would say that um, that St. That Bonaventure-Kentucky game that I mentioned earlier, um, because, like I said, it was my alma mater. Actually, no. What am I talking about? I um, So, it was, when I was still covering St. Bonaventure, they uh, had a... Uh, uh, an they they ended up on NCAA probation thanks in part to my excuse sorry about that. Um, they ended up on NCAA probation on because of my reporting. So they had a player, um, a junior college transfer by the name of Jamil Terrell, and uh, they brought him in. He was like the missing piece. He was going to be the guy that took a good team to the end back and got him back to the NCAA tournament. Well. February that year comes around and they're kind of middle of the road, and uh, he's an okay player. He's not bad, but he's not fantastic. And uh, we get a press release before a game that says a question has arisen about Jamil Terrell's eligibility. We are withholding him while we investigate. Turns out Jamil Terrell did not ha- had a an, uh, had a certificate of welding. From his junior college now the problem is not the welding the problem is that it was not equivalent to an associate's degree which you have to have in order to be an ncaa eligible and the problem now it gets better because it turns out that the school president whose son was an assistant coach on the basketball team had overruled his compliance officer and <laughs> declared him in declared him to be eligible but it gets better so they, the, on Monday, uh, Monday, the last Monday of the season, the A-10, the Atlantic 10, announces that um, he's, he was ineligible. He should not have been el- eligible all year. The team uh, will forfeit all of its conference games and is banned from the upcoming conference tournament. The players on the team feeling outraged and betrayed, like they did nothing wrong and it was, was kind of an uh, they felt over the top punishment. It was spring break. They up and left campus the day before they were supposed to travel to UMass. So we go. I I find this out. I'm calling around. I go to the practice the next morning. I'm there, and John Warro from the Associated Press in Buffalo is there. And we're at the gym where they're supposed to be having like a practice before getting on the bus and driving to Amherst, Massachusetts. And there are four players there and nobody else. The players are just gone. Like, they just left. They turned off their cell phones. Again, this is 2003, so no social media during the day at all. And they just up and left. And so the, the players and the team, the school ended up having to forfeit the last two games of the regular season because the players boycotted that. Wow. That was a fun week. And I've talked about this. I, I've talked about this. I can only imagine what reporting on that for with social media would have been like. Um, but just reporting on it for a newspaper was. I mean, it was great.
0: I, I I don't even like. I I don't even remember this. And I just I just Googled Saint Bonaventure probation, and the first thing that comes up is an article from the New York Times. I'm like, oh yeah. How about yeah.
1: that? yeah? Oh, it, it might be. It might be the one where is it the one where the players wrote a letter? Because they that that was a big deal when we were covering it was that all of a sudden the players had given a letter to the New York Times and not us locally. And we're like, what the hell are they doing? What the hell is the New York Times doing scooping us on this story? And uh, it was it was crazy. It was an absolutely wonderful experience to have to cover it. But it was also absolutely insane. Now,
0: no, this is the one where they where they announced they were put on probation for three years. That OK, is, that is wild. Yeah. Kate, I think you got one more.
2: Yeah, the one you seem to have added um, as we talk. So, has there been a story that you were able to break before the general public found out?
1: Break before the general public found out. Um, So, it, it, it relates to this Bonaventure story. Um, And when they announced, like, here's what had happened and like that first day before the player boycott happened, I was the first reporter in my uh, in our market to get a hold of the junior college coach. And he told me. And and we reported that he that he had told every school recruiting Jamil Terrell, including St. Bonaventure, look, he doesn't have an associate's degree. He's in the welding program. Are you do you know, like, can you do like, can you do this? You know, are he and the the, the quote I remember was I made that they were they knew what they were getting. I'm blotching the quote now, but they knew what they were getting. I knew they they were very aware of what of. Of his academic standing. And that was just kind of like the big deal, the big kind of hammer quote of, not, not this is a welding certificate, and the school knew. Like they knew that there were going to be questions about it, and they declared him eligible anyway. So I think that was probably the biggest story that I broke that the public didn't know uh, didn't know without me my reporting. You know, there were coach hirings and firings and stuff like that but um but those those are weird kind of scoops because they're transactional and they happen anyway. so this is the the one thing nobody would have known, I guess, if I hadn't reported it. Wow. It's
0: incredible. All right, I think that uh we're getting here towards the end of the show. I'll go ahead and start wrapping up. uh Brian, thanks again for being on the show. This has been absolutely awesome. Um do you have any uh, anything you'd like to plug social media, website, et cetera?
1: let uh, see. So you can find uh, you can find uh, m- my blog is at sportsmediaguy.com. It's where I also host two of my podcasts. One of them is The Other 51. Shout out to Hamilton, uh, where I interview a different writer every week. Um, and then I also have a podcast with uh, my friend, Dr. Galen Clavio. We call it the flip side. Uh, we usually talk about sports media stuff, but we also talk about beer and have arguments about food um, and that kind of and, that kind of stuff um and uh i'm on twitter at bp moritz and um that's about it
0: awesome again thank thank you for being on the show uh cape before thank we wrap you. it up you got anything you want to add
2: no not today
0: wow uh, this is uh this has been an awesome episode so uh be sure to check us out stadium scene.tv at stadium scene on facebook twitter and pinterest and stadium underscore scene on instagram and we will see you next time